Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, episode 531. This is the weekly show about slow flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This show is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free online directory to more than 880 florists, shops, and studios who design with local, seasonal, and sustainable flowers, and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. Thank you to our lead sponsor for 2021, Farm Girl Flowers. Farm Girl Flowers delivers iconic burlap wrap bouquets with lush, abundant arrangements to customers across the U.S. supporting more than 20 U.S. flower farms by purchasing more than $9 million of U.S.-grown fresh and seasonal flowers and foliage annually. Discover more at farmrowflowers.com. Thanks also to FlowerFarm.com, a leading wholesale flower distributor that sources from carefully selected flower farms to offer high-performing, fresh flowers sent directly from the farm straight to you. You can shop by flower and by country of origin at FlowerFarm.com. Find flowers and foliage from California, Florida, Oregon, and Washington by using the Origin Selection Tool in your search. It's smarter sourcing. Learn more at FlowerFarm.com. Thanks so much for joining us today. If there's anything I've learned from my publishing partner, Robin Avni, creative director of Bloom Imprint, it's that some stories are best told visually. And today's guest is going to immerse us in the visual delight of the natural world's amazing palette for pigments, dyes, and paints. Please meet Julie Beeler, a farmer florist and owner of Bloom and Dye based in Trout Lake, Washington. Julie is a designer, artist, educator, and native Oregonian who grew up with a deep love and curiosity for the natural world. Along with her husband, Brad Johnson, she founded and led Second Story, an interactive design studio in Portland until 2012. A Trout Lake resident since 2014, she conceived and launched Bloom and Die in 2018 to grow her work and passion to benefit what she values most, curiosity, education, creativity, collaboration, community, and the environment. Growth often starts with conversations that lead to an interest in knowing more. For Julie, educating others on how plants and their colors reflect the beauty of nature is something she's moved to share as a way to inspire care, stewardship, and impact. When she's not digging in the soil, Julie is working in her art studio and leading workshops. Julie joined me to introduce her newest amazing project, The Mushroom Color Atlas. Julie gathered a small team of artists and experts to create this free online resource. It will blow your mind. The Mushroom Color Atlas is a reference for anyone and everyone curious about mushrooms and the beautiful and subtle colors derived from them. But it is also the start of a journey and a point of departure, introducing you to the kaleidoscopic fungi kingdom and our connection to it. Some of you may remember being introduced to Julie and two other talented Slow Flowers members during our April 2021 monthly meetup. We called that Diving Into Dye Plants, and it included Elaine Vandiver of Old Homestead Alpacas and Golson Gardens, Lourdes Casanara Still of Masagana Flower Farm and Tinta Studio, and Julie Beeler. It was such a fantastic session, and you may have missed it or wish to watch the replay video. So look for that link in today's show notes as well for episode 531 at deborahprinzing.com. Okay, time to get started. Let's jump right in and meet Julie Beeler. You can watch the video of our conversation along with finding our show notes and photos, resources, and social media links to Bloom and Die Studio in our show notes at deborahprinzing.com for episode 531. Welcome you to uh, this week's Slow Flowers Show, which you can read, you can watch on both YouTube and Facebook Live. And today, my guest is a Slow Flowers member from Trout Lake, Washington, Julie Beeler. And Julie is the owner of Bloom and Die. Hi, Julie. Hi. Thanks for having me. 
Oh, thanks for saying yes. I know people are already kind of can't get, take their eyes off of all the goodies that you have in your studio space. Um, just as a, a kind of reminder, people uh, who attend regularly to our meetups, uh, Julie was part of a meetup this past spring. I think it was in March or April talking about pigment plants. And um, that really got us curious about working on a project together. So now we're talking about doing a book with Bloom Imprint and Julie's going to be teaching at the Northwest Flower and Garden Festival, which we'll talk about. But, um, you know, from fine artist to flower farmer to dye expert, you've got your fingers into in a lot of really wonderful, fascinating projects from the botanical world. And I was wondering if you could just introduce Bloom and Dye and your work and, um, we've got something exciting to share with our viewers today. Yes, I would be happy to. Um, so um, I'm Julie Beeler and I've founded Bloom and Dye, which is a flower farm uh, located in Trout Lake, Washington. I am at the base of Mount Adams, right along the White Salmon River. And I have an 18 acre organic farm, which I've carved out a, a percentage of the land for the flower farm here. And um, I grow specialty cut flowers that we deliver as uh, bouquets through a CSA subscription. And we deliver those weekly into our local area, April through September. And then I also grow a lot of dye plants um, that I sell both dried and fresh. And I sell those in the wholesale market as well as the retail. And then I also have a background in education and I teach uh, natural dye workshops here at the Bloom and Dye Studio as well as an off-site location. So oh, that's fun. a little bit about me and how I started uh, the flower farm. Wow, that's great. And you said you've been doing this for about eight years. Yes, I have. I started the farm five years ago, um, but I've been working with natural dyes and textiles specifically for the last eight years, but also prior as kind of a hobby and a passion. So. Wow. It's ex so exciting and so inspiring because I think there's this sort of explosion happening, um, which I guess I would call non-edible agriculture. Like people are seeing that you don't just eat plants. Obviously you can grow flowers, but there's so many other things that um, we're rediscovering that are, you know, maybe have were known by people <laughs> yeah. centuries ago, but we're just rediscovering them. And, you know, that's a perfect segue into this beautiful quote I loved from Ursula Le Guin, this idea of to use the world well, to be able to stop wasting it and our time in it, we need to relearn our being in it. Mm. And I think that is kind of where this resurgence is coming of how do we, you know, use all parts of, you know, agriculture and farming and, you know, be much more sustainable and environmentally friendly. And how do we introduce ourselves into this environment um, rather than saying, oh, the environment's here for us to just, you know, take advantage of and so yeah. forth. And I just think that when you are showing your students um, how to extract pigment from the natural world, it's it must just change how they look at a plant or in this case, look at some other vegetation like uh, bark or roots or a mushroom. Um, it's just Absolutely. exciting. When I, when I first found you on Instagram, I was like, Oh, I hope she joins slow flowers. Cause I love what she's doing. <laughs> and my background is textiles. But of course, when I studied clothing and textiles in college, we were taking like organic chemistry classes to learn about yeah. color because it was all synthetic. It was yes. nat natural, wasn't discussed or taught. Yes, but yet it's been with us since the beginning. You know, when you look back over time, um, you know, before the late 1800s, all the color that we see that's brought through art and textiles and you name it was through natural processes. And I think that is what is really exciting, you know, with the flower farm is that here, you know, I'm growing crops of indigo and matter and weld. And then we think about some specialty cut flowers like dahlias and scabiosa and they all have this color that I like to call it's the plant's tinctoria that we can then extract and coax out of it for all sorts of dyes pigments paints a whole variety of things so it's really exciting to have the opportunity to grow that experiment with it 
Well, I know we're going to talk about something really special that you uh, just developed uh, with your husband, I think, the um, the Mushroom Color Atlas. But yep. you, um, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the other ways that uh, you extract color from plants and, and also the applications in your own fine art? Um, I know you have some other slides to share, so I, I just don't want to jump ahead. Yes. Um, well, I had the Mushroom Color Atlas queued up. Would it be okay oh, to jump ahead yeah. and talk about extracting that? And yeah. then I have some slides <laughs> that I can jump to. Uh, well, this time, first of, of all, my own the, work, but yeah, yes, the, the, ta- the name, the Mushroom Color Atlas, like who doesn't want to get dive into that and see what that's all about? Yeah. You just, <laughs> you just debuted this resource, right, Julie? I did last Monday as part of Mycology Monday, which is a tag on Instagram um, that a lot of people who are interested in mycology post. And I debuted this and I um, have been, you know, mushrooms have captured our imagination as a culture for millennia. And it's just now in the last handful of years, as science is kind of revealing things to us through different studies and research that actually mushrooms can forge a new world and a better world and our relationship with that world. And I have been curious about mushrooms since I was a young kid playing at Mount St. Helens and, you know, curious about what are these strange looking uh, plants, I thought, growing on the ground. But here they are, you know, mushrooms, they're not a plant, they're not an animal, they're their own fungal kingdom. And when I started working with uh, the flower farm and growing the dye plants and so forth, I really got interested in the aspects of no-till farming and looking at the soil and the benefits of the soil. And then I started to discover all these mushrooms growing up through my soil. And, And as I learned more and got more immersed in mushroom dyes, you start to realize that the fungi are so intertwined with the plants themselves and everything that's happening in the soil that we don't see are these amazing networks. It's this mycorrhizal relationship. And so I was doing a real deep dive into understanding the mycological world kind of as a mycophile, but then also looking at how to bring that into my own work. And so here are dye mushrooms and the whole variety of colors that you can extract from these mushrooms. And here is how you can turn them in to pigment. So you oh can open goodness. up a whole world of um, creating paint and so forth. And I'm really fortunate in the area where I live in Trout Lake. I'm in the Columbia River Gorge, which is um, right. That's the border of Oregon and Washington. So I'm just about an hour east um, from Portland. But I live at the base of this incredible national forest, the Gifford Pinchot National Forest, which actually goes, you know, as far north to the border of uh, the Rainier Park and then as far west as Mount St. Helens. So it's huge. And I'm able to forage for these mushrooms. And it's just unbelievable the amount of mushrooms that are out there and available that you can begin to start to think about how to coax color from them. And so I naturally brought uh, mushrooms into my practice of farming and creating my own microorganism soil uh, systems and soils and things and kind of following these uh, natural practices. And then I was bringing them into my art studio uh, to work with them as dyes and paints and wow. so forth. So it's, it's so interesting because I know there's a whole, you use the term mycology. That's the study of mushrooms, yes. right? Yes, and I is. feel like there are, there's this whole cr- crowd of like the culinary world that knows how to, you know, eat the safe ones and cook with the safe yep. ones and add yep. all this rich flavor. And then all the others were be, all the non-edible ones were just being kind of like, Oh, okay. That's, that's interesting, but don't touch it. It's poison. Or don't eat it rather. And then now you're yes. discovering, oh, there's a whole there's, rich world that we don't need to eat them. We can just enjoy their color. And it's just fascinating that you've you've had to really study these too and, and I guess yeah. do your own experiments. Yeah, exactly. And there's a community of, you know, people that I've learned from and other mushroom dyers and through my mycological society and other friends. But it really is that fascinating 
we, you know, mushrooms are the fruit of, of the fungus and the mycelium that we referenced are the networks. It's the roots of the fungus. And so when you think about a mushroom, it's almost as if you were to pull an apple from a tree. We're thinking about the apples, the fruit. Well, the mushroom is the fruiting body of the fungus. And so here it is on the forest floor. And if you tune your eyes into the uniqueness of what's happening there and all these mushrooms, like you said, a small percentage of mushrooms are uh, those choice edibles that we all love and might see in our grocery store or on um, you know menus at restaurants. There are, you know, a majority of mushrooms actually are edible. Some may cause a little gastrointestinal distress, uh, but you know they might not be choice. But then there's a lot of mushrooms that are not choice edibles um, that may have some level of toxicity to them. Um, because when we think about these mushrooms, they have these relationships with trees through the mycelium and these mycorrhizal relationships where they're helping the tree and they're filtering water and nutrients and they are also filtering out the toxins so the mm. trees can be healthy. Mm -hmm. So those toxins appear in, in the mushrooms. Well, we can look at those mushrooms and we can start to think about what other properties do they have? And here we've got, a, you know, the Mushroom Color Atlas, which is a study of literally just a handful, about 28 mushrooms right now, that have produced over 600 colors. That's crazy. And I've highlighted a mushroom here, Hidnellium cerellium. For anyone out there who's worked with indigo or grown indigo, this is a tooth fungus, and it has very interesting characteristics in dying with it as you do with indigo. I'm not a chemist, I really wish I was, so I understood what was going on uh, with the chemical compounds in this mushroom, but the similarities to indigo are just really amazing and uh, really fascinating and interesting. Oh my goodness. Here's a mushroom that I really uh, love. It's called Bolitopsis grisea. Uh, this is a mushroom that actually tends to grow in habitats where people find the prized matsutake. So while everyone is out competing to find these, you know, delicious matsutake mushrooms, which I happen to love, what gets left behind are all the Bolitopsis grisea. Well, look at these beautiful greens it creates. Mm. And it is just, you know, I think of mushrooms are kind of the flowers of the forest floor. They come, uh, you know, in so many shapes and sizes, they're not what we typically think of as a mushroom, uh, you know, with just your basic stipe or stalk and a little cap and some gills underneath. Look at this, um, you know, floret, this bouquet of flowers. This is um, a blue chanterelle and blue chanterelles are actually edible. And some people enjoy eating these mushrooms. Um, I, of course, like to find them when they're a little past their prime and no one would really want to eat them and, uh, you know, put them in the dye pot. So, oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, it's just a myriad of opportunities, but that relationship with the plants and everything that we're growing, and you talked about like the bark and leaves and so forth, and these mushrooms are often growing with bark and wood and at the base of trees. So they have all these amazing properties. Some of them are uh, have mordants contained naturally within them. So it's just a really, really, really mm. exciting. Mm. Wow. That, that just sort of wets my whistle. Like I want to learn more. I've never really paid much attention to mushrooms. Um, and the fact that you started experimenting to get color, like how I want to ask you about your path as an artist, but just let's focus on the mushrooms for a little bit. The, first of all, it doesn't sound like it, even though they grow, it's not like you can, I guess you can commercially farm mushrooms, but mostly you're working with things that you're foraging for, right? Correct. Yeah. There is a whole industry of, um, farming mushrooms, which is fabulous. It's for edible purposes, for medicinal purposes, for research and scientific purposes in terms of, you know, using them to help with oil spills, you know, whatever may be happening. Mushrooms 
are incredibly powerful. So there is a lot of work being done um, in that regard. With mushrooms that are um, dye mushrooms, there are very few that I know of, if any, that are actually being cultivated and farmed. Um, often they are wild and foraged mushrooms. Um, some of the mushrooms, I'll show one here, um, there's kind of the, the famous uh, lobster mushroom that I don't know if you've heard of uh, that mushroom. I just, I love the name yeah. <laughs> in and of itself. But the uh, lobster mushrooms are mushrooms that are edible. They're highly prized. Um, people really enjoy them. This is the mushroom color atlas, but so, I want to just- So kinda... you basically have the, the the actual like botanical illustration of the mushroom at the top, which I think is yeah. super helpful because none of us, most people don't know the varieties. You've had to teach yourself all right. these varieties. Exactly. So this is the lobster mushroom that people eat. And I'm always, I love to show people this right away. It's like, look at the color that that mushroom can create all the varying ways across the different fiber types, making adjustments to the alkalinity or the acidity of the dye bath, working with them fresh or dried. You know, it, the possibilities are limitless. And then going ahead and making pigment, extracting pigment. Um, turn, well, actually not extracting, but you're extracting the color and then you're transforming that color mm -hmm. into an insoluble pigment. So, you know, it's just fascinating. <sighs> as an angle for people to get into mushrooms. I think um, they're a way forward into the future as we're looking um, to better the world that we're living in and facing kind of changes in climate, environmental issues, habitats, et cetera. But we as people, I feel, are wanting to connect ourselves more and more to nature. And how do we connect? And here, you know, mushrooms have this amazing ability to connect you to nature. Because when I think about mushrooms, I think about the network of the mycelium, everything that's happening down below. And these mushrooms are like our digital networks. Mm. And, you know, we're finding ourselves in these digital um, worlds. And I worked in digital media for 20 years. And that was the world that I lived in. And as I connected closer and closer to nature, I found kind of these um, communications, connections, and these relationships that here, the mushrooms were forging all those in the forest so that I could actually go out and connect with nature at a, at a grander level. So I just really wanted to get the atlas out there as a way for people to think creatively about what can come from nature, you know, beyond just say plants and flowers. So. Oh my gosh. It's insane. I mean, this is like looking at the lipstick chart for Lancome or something. I mean, the yes, colors yes. are so, <laughs> so luscious and, but I see how, okay. And now you're scrolling down so that you're getting more yes. of the earthy tones. Earthy um, tones, and then we can get into the blues and the greens. And, oh my uh, gosh! So yeah, if I if you so. click on one square, then it it highlights the mushroom that you use to create yep. that color. Yep. And the so reason is, oh, go ahead. And then you can click and go down, so you can either go through the you know mushroom itself up at the top. This is one of my favorites, Amphilodus olivescens. This is uh, the Western jack-o'-lantern, which I have never oh. found. This is a mushroom that was gifted to me. It grows in Northern California, but it glows in the dark. And my sweater that I'm wearing um, is actually dyed in this mushroom. So you can oh go through at the top here if you want, or you can return to the color atlas, scroll through if you find a color of interest, you can click on that and then you can enlarge the swatches um, to see the, the treatment on the different fibers with different mordants um, and what have you. So it's just, I'm hoping that it provides lots of pathways in for people to explore and, and become inspired and to connect them to nature. But I'm hoping my real goal is, is that everyone um, really starts to understand the connections and the relationships in these habitats and that we become better stewards 
of our environments, of our forests and of our habitats. Um, and we right. think about, you know, the power of this mighty mushroom from everything from eating it as a nutrient source to using it for medicinal purposes to helping solve, you know, large scale crisis to making beautiful colors that we can creatively incorporate into our work. So, wow. So someone discovers this, we're going to share this widely and they, they want to learn more. There's, there's definitely some methods that you've developed for, Yep. and you mentioned dried versus fresh. What, where would you recommend someone start if they just have a patch of mushrooms that kind of like, I, I have to say when I get mushrooms, sometimes it's after I spread new, um, compost Compost. or new um, mulch that I'm like, okay, well, this obviously was in the medium before it came to my garden. And now it's like flowering to use your term. Yes. yes, But I have no idea what it is. (laughs) Right. Well, so the mushroom color Atlas is not actually like a field guide. It um, isn't going to help you really a hundred percent ID a mushroom. The goal is, is that you can start to learn about the different uh, mushrooms. Oh, yeah. They're all organized according to type. Mm-hmm. And it would be great if you had a field guide, um, a mushroom field guide for your area. And you use that in conjunction with the Mushroom Color Atlas to start to learn. I found these things you know, they kind of look like they're a gilled mushroom because they have gills underneath, uh, like these uh, cortinarius here. Yes, I recognize those. Yes, and you're trying to figure them out. The field guides that are published, there's a lot of great field guides and um, for our area. And in fact, a friend of mine, Michael Bug, who is a really well-known mycologist, um, was a professor at Evergreen. He just came out with a new book a month ago it's a fabulous field guide for Cascadia. So exactly for our area in Washington, up into uh, British Columbia and Oregon. And that's a fantastic field guide. And uh, you can use that to start to learn about these mushrooms. And then you can come to the Mushroom Color Atlas and you can look at the index here and scroll through and start to learn if the mushrooms you're finding are actually you know, present in the Atlas. Now there are a lot of dye mushrooms that I haven't gotten to yet. I have a half a dozen waiting in the wings on my table in the studio um, to digitize and to add in. So this is going to be growing and so forth. Um, But there's also a process page that I put together where I walk through um, my entire process and it's broken down into sections. So all about the mushrooms. And you talked about dried versus fresh. I talk about that here and okay. explain how I'm doing that. Um, the fiber I use, the different fibers, where I sourced them from, how I cleaned the fibers. In the natural dye world, we call that scouring, but it's basically giving everything a nice wash. Um, and then in the in the natural dye world, uh, what's happened kind of as synthetic dyes are more and more prevalent and are the majority of the type of um, clothing and things we might buy. The idea of the mordant, which is a a French term that means to bite or to bind, um, is built into that synthetic color. So you don't have to go through a process of treating your fabrics first before you dye them. But for natural dyes, we do have to do this two-step process. We have to mordant our fibers, which means we are um, treating them with a mineral or a natural property that is a mordant that then the dye is going to affix to and adhere to the fiber. I think you so, describe it. You describe the definition really well there too. It's okay. you're uh, as you said, the, you're affixing the nat- natural pigment to the n- natural fiber. Yep, exactly. So I walk through exactly how to do that. And then I talk about the dyeing and how I dyed with these mushrooms, how I did a process called laking uh, to make a lake. It's a it's a strange term, in my opinion. Um, there is a, a backstory of where that term came from. But what we're doing is we're taking this dye bath 
and you kind of think of it if you drink tea and you you're steeping your tea right mm-hmm. similar that's how you're making a dye bath you're you're warming things up you're getting the color out of them and they're soluble and we can put fibers in them and you know they'll soak up the color but a pigment is insoluble so we have to take it through this kind of chemical reaction so that we can capture all the color all the pigment uh, molecules in that dye and make them um, insoluble. And so I talk through the process of how to do that. And then as soon as you've got that pigment, you can make any kind of paint. For the Mushroom Color Atlas, I made watercolor uh, because that was a, a, a simple, easy way for me to work with it. But you can make oil paint, um, you could make, I make often paint that goes on fabric mm-hmm. with gum, gum tragacant. So you can make a whole variety of paint. So I've talked through that too. Wow. So. Oh my gosh. Julie, my mind is blown. This is such a <laughs> gift to the world of artists and flower farmers and designers and people who, of course, are fans of mushrooms, but also just pigment plants. Um, And the fact that you said 28 mushrooms produce more than 600 colors and you intend to keep adding to this, this is like a living document, um, a reference. Yes. And that's what I'm really excited, um, you know, to provide this resource as an educational resource. um, We're always learning as, you know, natural dyers and artists and farmers, you know, there's always something that you're learning that you're challenged by. And it's through that learning that you make these discoveries and find new ways to apply it to yourself. So my hope is, is that it sparks people's imagination and makes them curious. Yeah. About the fungi kingdom. So. Well, if people want to learn more, I did notice on your website that you have a laking workshop coming up. And I didn't know what that term meant, but you've just introduced that to me. Um, <laughs> that's that's in November, right? It is. Yep, yep. It is indeed. And, and so people in their Pacific Northwest, they can register for um, in-person courses. But you do also teach online I have. I've been teaching um, a series of virtual workshops online, um, and I'll roll some of those out in the spring. I'm going to take a little winter's nap for Good. a while from uh, <laughs> teaching the online workshops and, and do some things with Mushroom Color Atlas and some of my own work. But um, yeah, and I'm teaching in person in the spring as well. Right, right. And we're excited that you're coming to be uh, an instructor at the um Northwest Flower and Garden Festival, which is February 9th through 13th in Seattle. Do you know what date you're you're teaching on yet? It is the 11th. Okay. Saturday. Okay. So yeah. it, it it's really, it's on the DIY stage. If you come to the Northwest Garden Flower and Garden Festival and purchase a ticket, all the workshops and, and lectures are free. Oh, you even got conveniently got a slide here. That's great. Uh, so no, people can um, come see your presentation colors from the design garden. I didn't even know the title of your presentation. That's going to be amazing. And you're not going to, you're going to talk about things beyond mushrooms, but uh, you'll probably touch on those too, right? Yeah. I might touch on them just as an example, but I'll be focusing on, um, you know, colors from the garden and working specifically with those plants. Then then that's perfect for the home gardener and the the garden enthusiast who's going to come to that show. Yeah. Um, before, um, so yeah, go ahead. Oh yes. No, go ahead. Cause I was, was going to ask you about your own work. So this about is my work. <laughs> yeah. Show us the quote that was right before that though. Was well, there... I, there was, a, there is a quote here and, um, the quotes from Merlin Sheldrake who wrote a book entangled life, which I highly recommend everyone read. Uh, Merlin is, you know, an incredible scientist, so knowledgeable, but an amazing writer. And this quote stood out to me because as a flower farmer, when you are thinking that 90% of all plant species depend on mycorrhizal fungi, so they're the rule, they're not the exception. They're more fundamental um, part of the plant hood than actually the fruit and the flowers and the leaves and the wood and the roots. And talking about this relationship that they have, and I love how he describes it as this intimate partnership. Um, that those plants 
And the mycorrhizal fungi, they basically enact this kind of collective flourishing that then we see, you know, as flower farmers, as we're working with our crops and so forth. And what I love is he says, we are unthinking without them, yet seldom do we think about them. And that's so true because I'm thinking about how is everything behaving above ground and how's it performing and what does it need and what's happening? You know, are all the grasshoppers eating my dahlia petals? You know, but it is really this idea that we aren't thinking about the fungi and the mycorrhizal relationships down in the soil. And he says, and I think we can all recognize this at some level, that the cost of our neglect has never been more apparent. And it's an attitude that we really can't afford to sustain. And so I just love how he he sums that up and how we um, need to begin to think about um, the fungi kingdom and, and right. what's happening. I mean, we, we know about the mycorrhizum, you know, mm-hmm. uh, benefits in our soil, but that's so, such a superficial sentence I just spoke. Uh, you're really opening my eyes to think about, um, you know, this exploring what practices can I do in my own backyard yep. and what people can do on larger pieces of property to enhance and, you know, support this network you just described. Yep. Obviously being an organic flower farmer or organic yeah. gardener is critical, right? Yes. Yes. It is critical. And, and thinking about ways, um, where you're doing a very minimal disturbance to the soil and you're letting those networks flourish. Um, I took a group of color designers out into the forest on Friday and we were, you know, looking, looking for mushrooms. And we were talking about when you, when you go into the forest and we saw a mushroom and we kind of pulled the soil away a little bit because it was kind of tucked under the duff. And we immediately saw these kind of white feathery networks of like, what was that? And that's actually the roots of the fungus just right there. And we talked about how important it is that we don't go disturb that environment, that we don't go upsetting it, because that's the equivalent that instead of actually taking the apple from the tree, we decided we're just going to cut the apple tree down and kill it. And so it's that kind of the subtleties and the nuances of what's happening there and that light touch that, yes, we can forage um, these fruiting bodies. And and that's fine. Of course, we don't need to be greedy in our foraging. And we want to definitely think about what stage the mushroom's in, because if it's too young, it hasn't had the opportunity to distribute its spores, which it needs to. but we can do that as long as we do that in an appropriate way. And I think about the same thing. You know, I used to pull up the roots of my indigo every year at the end of the season. And I started to think, why am I doing that? I'm putting that much pressure on the soil and disturbing that relationship. I just need to let those roots stay in the soil and kind of get it absorbed and become part of that network. Um, so it's just changed yeah. my yeah. you know, everyday practices at, at small, you know, in small ways, but in ways that have a bigger, bigger impact um, on wow. my farm. So, so Julie, the, what you just described doing with the color artist, you would have just like some, used some kind of knife or tool to just mm-hmm. cut the top with a little bit of the stem off and leave, leave that delicate root system untouched. Yeah. Yeah. You can cut, um, you can cut the mushroom and certain mushrooms are harder to pull out than others. So it's nice to cut because you do less disturbance, but you can also gently pluck every mushroom out. Mm. There are two schools of thought as to whether to cutting or pulling. Um, There's been a lot of scientific studies done that show there's really no detriment one way or the other, but there is detriment if you're pulling them out in ways that you're disturbing the soil, uh, that habitat. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So. Well, before we wrap up, uh, we are going to talk about Julie Beeler, the artist. Your background is in fine art, right? Yeah, my background's in fine art and graphic design. And then I worked um, with digital media and interactive media, uh, you know, from the Wayback Machine. Starting that's why in you can 90s. create, <laughs> that's why you could create this atlas. You understand that whole, I mean, that's, that's a, 
thing to behold. That's a sight to behold. Well, I was really uh, fortunate. I worked in design and I, it's just, there's so many worlds coming together for me that just make me so happy about the Mushroom Color Atlas. And one of those is um, being able to work with my partner um, who I had a design studio with uh, for 20 years, who's also my husband, who took a real keen interest in this and wanted to work on the design of it. And, uh, and then a great friend and colleague, um, Danny Rosenberg, who I've worked with for many years, was really interested in programming it. And then kind of this new relationship that was sparked on Instagram um, with Yuli Gates in the UK doing the illustration. And I love that because Instagram, you know, I'm on Instagram and I have been for, you know, eight, 10 years. And I've learned so much through Instagram that, um, to be able to spark this relationship with someone because I've met so many people in that world and it was just wonderful. So between Brad, Danny and Yuli and myself, we, it was a labor of love. Um, that's been a lot of fun and we're thrilled to see it Mm. out there in the world. (laughs) Mm. Well, you have a few slides showing your, your own work. And, um, I love, I love that you're going to share with us what you've done here. Yeah. So, um, I work with textiles and do stitching and embroidery. And this is an image of the different plants I've grown, indigo and marigold in this case, and working with those plants to create colors and then combining them over dyeing and seeing what those um, relationships are when the colors are combined. And then here's some examples of my mushroom dyed pieces that I've done um, that are looking at kind of these geological themes. And and then I work a lot with um, the flowers that I grow doing a process that's called bundle dyeing, um, which is just a really lovely way to take the, the flowers and the fibers and using steam and kind of getting these imprints and expressions of them. Um, and then doing a lot of work with color. This is um, the mushroom color chart. Um, this is a class I started teaching at Wildcraft Studio School in Portland. And, and I really wanted students to be able to take away kind of this rainbow that lives beneath our feet that these mushrooms produce. But because I'm not a a fiber artist, you know, I don't knit and weave. And so the threads I'm working with are embroidery threads that I dye, Mm -hmm. which are very- Because you're doing surface, (laughs) you're doing surface design with threads and uh, more than anything else, right? Right. So I conceived of this idea of this mushroom chart and and it really was seeing kind of the success and the interest of that through my workshops that I thought I could put this resource together of, um, you know, colors in this, you know, the spirit of this chart I'm doing and do it digitally and provide it as a, a resource for everyone. Oh my gosh, um, Julie, it's, it's such a gift. Oh, thank you. And then I also work um, doing this botanical printing where you're trying to get more of that perfect print from the leaf or the flower. And then I'm also working with everything in kind of pigment form. Um, I can often, uh, as flower farmers know, how much effort it takes to grow things and harvest them and process them and work with them. That for me, if there's any ounce of color left in anything, I want to find ways, you know, to use it up and to store it and and use it in different ways. So I really got into the the laking process and working with pigments. And the la- the re- the byproduct of the laking process is what is seen in that filter, that round filter, yes. in yes. the yep. in the That's image of pigment, and also that whole uh, collage behind you, right? Yep. 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 My pigment filters. Those were all studies and tests on the wall as I was learning, um, kind of the, there's an art form to making lakes and I was trying to learn and improve and get better and was taking workshops with people. And so I started mm. to hang them up on the wall cause mm. they look so beautiful. Mm. <laughs> I, I, they do. I love it. Wow, this is a lot to digest. And I know that um, when we share this um, interview um, the, on our show notes at deborahprinzing.com, will people be able to watch the video and also listen to the audio? But I'll add a links 
to um, the uh, Mushroom Color Atlas and also your website so people can sign up for your newsletter and find out about your workshops um, after you take your winter nap. (laughs) Yes. Well, workshops with Wildcraft Studio School, those are going to all be released on November 4th. So you can go to their website or mine and sign up for a newsletter and that'll be coming out. And okay. uh, yeah, thank you, Deborah. This is so wonderful. My it's mind a- is blown. I will never look at a mushroom the same way. <laughs> and I can't wait to um, to see your presentation in Seattle and also just dig deeper into this incredible world that you've, I mean, just such a generous gift that you've brought to, as I said, to the to the world of all creatives, because if somebody, no matter what their medium, there's probably a mushroom pigment that will um, be appropriate for that medium. So uh, there's a lot of exploration still to come from that. That's my hope. Yeah. So thank you. Thanks for this opportunity. Yeah. Anything else you want to add before we wrap up? No, just thank you so much. It was wonderful to talk with you about this and you can probably tell I could go on and on forever. Oh. I just get so excited about it. And um, even my dog got a little excited. I think you guys all heard him barking <laughs> in the background. So apologies this, for that. This he is was the, sleeping under the table and then he woke up. <laughs> this is the third Zoom meeting I've had in 24 hours where there, there has been a canine uh, cameo appearance. It's, <laughs> we're used to it now. <laughs> okay, Julie, thank you so much. It's thank been you. such an exciting uh, conversation and I know it's going to inspire people. Great. Thanks so much, Deborah. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. I'm so excited that Julie brought this project to life and shared it with our community and everyone who loves plants, the natural world, art, and color. Check out the Mushroom Color Atlas. You can find it at mushroomcoloratlas.com and learn more about Julie at bloomanddie.com. As we discussed, if you're in the Pacific Northwest, please come to Julie's DIY stage presentation at the Northwest Flower and Garden Festival, Saturday, February 12th at 5 p.m. Her presentation is called Colors from the Dye Garden. I'll see you there. Our next sponsor thank you goes to the Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers. Formed in 1988, ASCFG was created to educate, unite, and support commercial cut flower growers. Its mission is to help growers produce high-quality floral material and to foster and promote the local availability of that product. Learn more at ASCFG.org. It's a busy week here at the Slow Flower Society, folks, and I want to draw your attention to two items of note. First, this Friday, November 12th, is our November virtual member meetup, and the theme is a hot topic for sure. We're calling it All About Flower Co-ops and Wholesale Hubs. Now that the growing season is winding down for many of our members who are flower farmers, growers, and farmer florists, everyone can take a breath, and it's time to reassess and also plan for the future. We've heard from so many members and supporters about the desire to form a collective selling hub for your flowers, but the concept may seem daunting. Of course, there's some established models, most notably the amazing Seattle Wholesale Growers Market now in its 10th year. But what about some of the newer groups? We wanted to bring their stories and voices to you in our meetup format. You can find the link to join the meetup. We'll have it in today's show notes for episode 531 at com. We also have the link in our profile at Soulflower Society on Instagram. You must follow that link to pre-register, so you'll receive the login details. And the session will go for 90 minutes this time around, beginning at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on Friday, November 12th. Our guests include Connie Homerick of Ohio Cut Flower Collective and Patty Dole of Garden State Flower Cooperative. And their presentations will be followed by a Q&A session, after which you'll be invited to join one of three topic-specific breakout sessions. We'll have one featuring Jamie Rogers and Carly Jenkins of Killing Frost Farm and the Farm to Flores Montana group and Allie Harrison of Florage Farms. They're going to discuss how farmers are wholesaling their own flowers and on behalf of other farms. 
And the next one will be about co-ops. And we'll dive deeper with Amanda Mauerman, co-founder of the Michigan Flower Growers Co-op. And the third one, we'll talk about the multi-owner business model of a for-profit wholesale flower hub. And we'll hear from Haley Tobias from Old Dominion Flower Cooperative. It will be an info pack session. And we're so grateful to each of the experts who are joining us to share their knowledge with you. Oh, and another item of note that dropped this week, our annual member survey. Following up after a fantastic October member appreciation month, we'd love to hear from you. The reason for this survey is to learn how you feel all about the ways Slowflower Society benefits and supports its members, and to hear your new ideas for features, programs, and resources that we might consider for the coming year. One year ago, in the fall of 2020, I'm pleased to say we had 30% member participation with more than 200 of you taking time to complete the survey. Our membership has grown since then, and the Slow Flowers community is now nearly 900 members. We're hoping to continue to increase the participation in the survey this year. To make it worth your time, here's an enticement. Every Slow Flowers member who completes the survey by December 3rd will be entered into a drawing for two giveaways. One is a full-year complimentary premium membership valued at $249, and the other is a dinner ticket to the four-course farm-to-table dinner on Monday, June 27th, 2022, at the famed Blue Hill Restaurant at Stone Barn Center during the Slow Flower Summit. That's valued at $300. You can find the survey link in today's show notes at deborahprincing.com for episode 531. Thanks in advance for sharing your insights and ideas. And finally, thank you to Red Twig Farms. Based in Johnstown, Ohio, Red Twig Farms is a family-owned farm specializing in peonies, daffodils, tulips, and branches, a popular peony bouquet by mail program, and their Spread the Hope campaign, where customers purchase 10 tulip stems for essential workers and others in their community. Learn more at redtwigfarms.com. Thanks so much for joining us today. The Slow Flowers Podcast and the Slow Flowers Show are member-supported endeavors, and I value our loyal members and supporters. If you're new to our weekly show or our long-running podcast, check out all of our resources at slowflowerssociety.com and consider making a donation to sustain Slow Flowers' ongoing advocacy, education, and outreach activities. You can find the donate button in the column to the right at deborahprinzing.com, where our show notes live. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of The Slow Flower Show and podcast. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more slow flowers on the table, one stem, one vase at a time. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. The Slow Flowers podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brinlin. You can learn more about Andrew's work at soundbodymovement.com. Thank you.